Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, which is brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Go to thedispatch.com to check out all our wares. Um, sign up for the G-File, David French's newsletter, the, the, the Morning Dispatch, and all that stuff. And today's episode is brought to you by Mrs. Fields. More about them in a little bit. Okay, uh, so this is a bit of a weird episode. Um, I am sitting alone in my hotel room in Vegas. And for my worried wife, I want to emphasize alone in my hotel room in Vegas. I have a speech tonight. And I had a speech yesterday in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a lot of fun and kind of interesting. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, But as I mentioned on our previous podcast, um, or maybe two, I did an event with uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw last week at Texas A&M, and um, it was for NRI, where I'm still a fellow, Um, and it was supposed to be not so much an interview, but a conversation, but he's more important than I am, and all that, so it was a little bit more of an interview than a conversation, but it was a good time had by all. Crenshaw's a really good guy. He has a interesting entourage around him because um, he was basically doing this as a full-blown campaign swing or something through Texas. Um, this was not a campaign event. It's just that he was there with his staff and they were interesting people. Anyway, um, it made a little bit of news, only insofar it was one of the many events where these alt-right kids, I guess they go by the name Gripers, showed up. And apparently they'd showed up at earlier events that Crenshaw had done with uh, Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk. And uh, I guess in California recently, they, uh, gave, <laughs> they gave Don Jr. a really hard time. And uh, I'm sorry to chuckle. I am no fan of these kids. I'm also not a huge fan of, of Don Jr. or, for that matter, Turning Point USA. So in some ways, I'm tempted to do the whole, you know, Henry Kissinger, Iran-Iraq war thing. But the truth is, as much as I have my criticisms of, of, you know, Kirk and Candace Owens and certainly of Don Jr. and all that, if forced to choose between the two sides, it's a pretty easy choice because the Groyper kids are a bunch of racists and anti-Semites. They follow some 21-year-old kid who has a, some podcast somewhere who's a Holocaust denier and a piece of work. And they're one of the many, many, many splinter groups that formed in the wake of Charlottesville, or at least that's my understanding. And their tactic, I have to say, is kind of smart. What they do is they're fairly well-behaved. They show up at these events, and they ask these really leading, loaded questions. They all read them from their iPhones. That's one of the tells, because they're all prepared for them. Uh, They're sort of punched up and script-doctored so that they're um, at least to the, uh, the, the lay listener in the audience doesn't quite, can't quite necessarily tell what they're up to. And then during the Q&A in these events, they swarm the microphones and they ask these questions about Israel and being swarmed by the dark and dusky people and how terrible it is that, you know, they, they sort of make this point that you can hear echoed from people like Laura Ingraham, Laura Ingraham a lot these days too, but uh, they're much more pointed about it, that the real problem with immigration from these third world countries and whatnot and mass immigration and all the rest is that they will vote white America out of existence. They will vote conservatism out of existence. 
Um, they seem to believe that there is something inherent in um, being a person of color or being from a less developed country or whatever that makes you vote Democratic. I think it's all a bunch of horse manure um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, among them, uh, first of all, most of the immigrants who vote Democratic who come here do so not because they have dark skin or anything like that, but because they tend to be disproportionately poor. And um, poor people tend to disproportionately vote for the Democratic Party. Another reason is that the Democratic Party is really good at reaching out to these people. They hold events at, sign at swearing-in ceremonies, at immigration citizenship ceremonies. They do community outreach. They work machine politics in cities to reach out to minorities. And the thing is, and this is one of my great frustrations, is that the Republican Party, um, particularly in the last couple of years, has decided that that's a losing strategy for them. Rather than actually try to persuade um, immigrants or, look, American citizens who are native-born but are people of color or um, not traditionally part of the Republican coalition, uh, they sort of write off trying to reach out to these people and instead double and triple down on um, sort of a cultural politics that feels very exclusionary to people. You know, and I don't know a huge amount about retail politics, but I'm pretty sure that one of the best ways to get people to vote for you is to ask them for their vote. And Republicans are very, very bad at that. And so one of the f fundamental flaws in the whole alt-right or griper or whatever you want to call it, or even some of the crap you hear um, on talk radio and on cable television from right-wingers, is there's this idea that these people, by their very nature, are unconvertible to our cause. And uh, Matt Continetti and I talked about this a little bit in the first podcast of the week. Um, they would rather just sort of um, throw up the barriers to their coalition and write out their advantages in the Electoral College and all of the rest. I'm a bit of a skeptic about a lot of the voter suppression stuff, but you know, there's some of that going on to, to a certain degree. Um, uh, but mostly it's a cultural politics that says that if you don't look like us or sound like us or know all the right shibboleths that we know, some, we don't want you. And what's so incredibly stupid about this and what is the real flaw in this thinking is you could have a complete timeout in immigration right now. Just shut it down, put the wall up everywhere, cancel all the visas, and you still would get to the same situation that these people fear because the Republican coalition of white Christians and uh, sort of traditionalists is just old and dying off and shrinking, and the GOP is making no serious effort about expanding its coalition and winning over new voters. The immigration thing is, a, is, is largely a red herring. Yeah, sure, I'm willing to concede maybe it is uh, accelerating a process, um, but that process is inevitable so long as the Republican Party and conservatives don't show much skill, effort, or willingness in winning over new voters. Um, the Republican Party coalition will die no matter what unless it does that. And immigration is a, is a sideshow. The other you know, part of it that really kind of drives me crazy is their, their, their argument is that... Um, whatever you want to call it, fusionist conservatism, Buckleyite conservatism, Reaganite conservatism, that's fake conservatism. And the real conservatism, authentic conservatism, is 
uh, racial solidarity or ethnic solidarity or white nationalism or whatever you want to call it. And they make it sound like there's this grand tradition of this stuff. And intellectually, it's just garbage. I mean, there have always been some cranks who believe it, to be sure. But there's nothing, that says, there's nothing inherent in that that says that that's conservatism. In fact, if you go back and you look at, what, at the birth of nationalism in Europe, uh, that wasn't conservatism. It was radicalism. The aristocrats of old Europe, I mean, they intermarried. You know, you had these, you know, the whenever there was the, the, the you know, I don't know, the, the Tudor line or the Stuart line. I can't keep track of all those things. But whenever, like, the English bloodline was getting, like, thin and they needed to import fresh blood, uh, they didn't go looking for candidates from the ranks of the English working class or the bourgeoisie. They went shopping abroad and got Danes or French or Germans, other ethnicities, people who didn't even speak the English language to come in. That was a much more standard practice. That was the conservative way to do it in the small c um, sense of things. Nationalism, which was originally understood and called romantic nationalism by, by people who study this stuff, emerges basically in the wake of the, of, of the end of the divine right of kings, where it used to be that, you know, ethnic solidarity didn't define England or France or all these kind of places. All of these nation states, such as they are or were, were full of people who considered themselves different ethnicities, different peoples. They spoke different languages. The number of people who didn't speak French in France was enormous until fairly recently. Uh, the supposed German peoples didn't see themselves as German peoples until very, very late, you know. The, the, German, the Germanic lands were a whole bunch of little principalities and princely states that were just sort of loose confederations, often at wars with each other, speaking different dialects and whatnot. And so this idea that there's this grand history of uh, sort of conservative racial and ethnic solidarity is nonsense. Anyway, so the reason why the divine right, of, the reason why nationalism replaces the divine right of kings is is wasn't an ethnic thing at first. It was a linguistic thing. If you go read um, Johann Ficht, who's considered one of the founding fathers of modern nationalism, or of nationalism, uh, his letter to the German people. I think it's in like eighteen o one or eighteen o seven or something like that. I write about it a bit in my book. Um, his whole argument was about uh, the Germanic language or the German language. That was what unified a people. It wasn't an ethnic thing. It was all about linguistic purity. And it's a really remarkable document to read because you can see how easily more modern and flawed uh, ideas of uh, racial purity that come at the end of the 1900s and the early 20th century just sort of slids almost seamlessly into these, these formulations about language. There's all this stuff about how Germ in, in, you know, in 1800, when they didn't have this race science stuff yet, the whole thing was about how uh, you know, German was the last true pure language. It wasn't tainted by uh, the Roman influence of the Roman Empire. It wasn't Latinized. Uh, you had uh, Johann Herder, who was another one of the founders of Romantic Nationalism, you know, exhorting the German people to spit out the, sl the slime of the Seine because all of the elites in Germany spoke French. And this sort of language, which was all about contagion and dirtiness and all of these kinds of things, and also pride and, you know, lots of more uplifting things, seamlessly sort of re were replaced by this new science of race stuff that came, you know, a century later. And it was radical. 
it was revolutionary. There was nothing conservative about it. The divine right of kings was replaced by the sort of divine authority of the people. The people, the populist will, Volksgemeinschaft, was deified and, and turned into this glorious thing and that whatever the, the people were for was therefore right. And that was, it, was, it wasn't democracy. It wasn't a republic. It was um, this sort of quasi-spiritual mumbo-jumbo about the authentic nature of a specific group of people. And you can think that stuff is right. I don't. But you can think that stuff is right. Or you can think there's stuff in there that is w- worthwhile. And I think that's a much easier case to make. And Rich makes a g- Rich Lowry makes a good one for some of that. Um, but the idea that this was conservatism is nonsense. It's just not true. Um, there's no point in the history of American conservatism where white nationalism or white solidarity was the true and authentic conservatism, unless you're talking about maybe some people in the Confederacy or whatnot. So anyway, um, the reason why this is all fresh in my mind is because last night at Madison on on Wednesday night, uh, a bunch of these kids came and did the same thing with me solo. And I don't have audio of that, um, but it was it was pretty interesting, you know, doing their little reading from an iPhone thing and talking about how we're going to lose the country because these people are swamping us and all the rest. And I think it's all really pathetic. And that's the final problem with this alt-right stuff. The very strategy that they want to pursue, the very kind, of, very kind of cultural politics that they think is a winning program is guaranteed to destroy and taint conservatism for a generation if they were ever going to be successful. I don't think they're going to be successful. But like when you actually... If you think that the way you're going to beat identity politics is by embracing your own uh, racial identity politics for white people, just as a demographic proposition, that's nuts. Because if you're going to own your racism um, and say that these people aren't real Americans or we don't want any more people who look like you, that almost guarantees that those people are going to vote against you and your policies. And so even if they were right about everything on all of this racist stuff, which they're not, as a matter of pure political strategy, uh, they're nuts. Uh, so anyway, uh, I wanted to sort of get that out there. Um, there were other things to talk about that happened that were kind of interesting, but we can save that for when I actually have a conversation with somebody. <laughs> and uh, so we've got this audio from the Crenshaw event. Thank you to Texas A&M for letting us have it. Thank you for Dan Crenshaw for being cool with it. Uh, I think there were going to be some audio issues with some of the Q&A stuff because some kids didn't have microphones and all that kind of stuff, and I don't know if everything is uh, completely audible, but we tried, I think, to repeat questions and make it clear. Um, But other than that, uh, I'll just let it speak for itself. Uh, Thanks for putting up with this weirdness, and um, I apologize for uh, any audio problems or all that kind of stuff, but I I think it should be okay. So here we go. Good crowd. Yeah. I think you have the crowd with you. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it, you, you know, if, if only if they do a standing ovation at the end. There's a lot of pressure when they do a standing ovation at the beginning. That's true. And you haven't That's actually true. impressed them yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> first of all, my apologies for that ridiculously long bio. Someone will get flogged later. Um, it's particularly embarrassing when they then read his bio. <laughs> um, 
so as now everybody there here knows, thank you uh, to the sponsors of this, uh, Texas A&M, the College Republicans, YAF, and the National Review Institute, and thank you, Dan, for doing this and making me look like such a wimp. Um, and uh, I guess we're supposed to do this as a conversation rather than just sort of a straight-up interview, but I, since I'm the, least, the less interesting of the two of us, I figured I would jump on this. Um, for a while, you were arguably the most famous warrior, soldier, whatever, in Washington, um, and now you're eclipsed by a dog. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair to the dog, those dogs are, you know, for lack of a better word, badass. Yeah. Um, they, <laughs> they, uh, they're, they're about 130 pounds, so they're much smaller than, than us human special operators, but they run into that building with, uh, you know, with some kind of scent that they've got, and they find that target, and they go right after him. doesn't matter how well-armed that target is. And then they come out, you know, happy as can be, just yeah. like dogs often are, you know, just looking for that next treat. I mean, these dogs are awesome. I, I love working with them. They, 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 you know, there's a reason they're called man's best friend. So uh, I don't feel that bad about it. Okay, well, fair enough. And <laughs> they'll, they'll get over the dog eventually. You yeah. Know, and, you know, and, and uh, he'll probably do fewer interviews than you will. So That's it, true. You know. Still be more popular. Who would you rather take a picture with, though? That dog. That's true. Point? I mean, for a little while. Although I have to, I'm the first one to admit that this would have been this is a lovely attendance, but it would have been better attended if it was Conan and Crenshaw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would have showed up to watch that. Um, so we want to save a lot of time for Q and A and all of that kind of thing, and uh, we just sort of want to cover the waterfront. Just so you know, we're trying to record this for my podcast. So you are a live studio audience, which we don't usually do. Um, so thank you for that, for volunteering. Um, and or being, uh, I, I did an event at VMI recently, and I learned this word from the military, voluntold. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, so you've been voluntold. That's the thing. That you're the studio audience. <laughs> um, uh, so you do a lot of stuff with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are sort of a former young person. Uh, recovering young person. Sure. sure. Uh, Elder um, millennial. Uh, I remember being young. It was awesome. And uh, uh, do you have a working theory about why it is that socialism seems to be as popular as it is these days? Yeah. There, well, there's a lot of different theories. And um, first, you start with definitions of, of what people mean by socialism. And then you get into the, to the deeper psychology of why socialism is appealing. And you know, I think your book is, is probably a good place to start on that. But what we find is young people have different, the, the advocates of socialism oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes have a totally different definition than what you and I would think of, which is, which is owning the means of production, setting prices, things like that. Uh, they don't always mean that. Sometimes they do. And I argue that even if they don't mean that, their policies that they're advocating for inevitably lead there. So that's a problem in and of itself. But to start off, they don't always mean that. Whether they call themselves a socialist or a liberal or a progressive, it's important to define the terms first because otherwise we're, we're casting stones at them right away because you and I have a different a definition right. of progressivism, for instance. I think you and I would both think of Woodrow Wilson-era progressivism, okay, this, this sort of state-run economy, down with the Constitution, down with these checks, these 
these annoying checks and balances that get in the way of this progress that we want so bad to implement and make your life better because we really want to promise to end your suffering. That's a quick road to socialism, but let's keep in mind that's not always what they mean. And especially with young people, this is a conversation I have. And, and I especially tell this to conservatives who are trying to convince young people to see it their way. Understand that a lot of young people live a liberal lifestyle. And there's not necessarily something wrong with that because they mean something different than you and I would think. And, and, they, and they'll use the terms liberal and progressive interchangeably as far as that lifestyle goes. Maybe it means having a bunch of tattoos. Maybe it means just living in a diverse community, having friends from different, uh, from, from different countries, going to a gay or straight wedding. They don't care. Maybe it means smoking some pot. Maybe it means doing yoga with baby goats. Okay? Like it's, these are kind of liberal lifestyle things. And so they do this stuff. And, and I get it. Like this, is, this is my age group. I get it. The question we then ask them is, does that make you politically left-leaning? Okay, and so that, and that's a bit of a different conversation about how to be persuasive, but it's important to understand that people define these things very loosely. And so it's incumbent on us, as, as, as somebody trying to be persuasive, that we define it first and make sure they know that we're not attacking them for, say, that liberal lifestyle. What we're attacking is the ideas of governance that, that they are voting for and, and maybe not thinking clearly about. And another interesting um, data point or survey that, that I saw once was uh, a survey that, that had very high favorability for socialism, but also high favorability uh, for this notion that government has too much say in your life. So that's interesting. Because, so there's good news and bad news with that. It, on the one hand, it means that uh, we have something in common. We think there's too much government intervention in your life. On the other hand, it's bad news because the, the definition of words has apparently changed. Right. And so we have to define that term. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. If you look in the polling, almost all, in all the polling about how socialism is popular now, um, it basically jibes with whenever capitalism is unpopular. Right? And mm-hmm. so for a lot of people, it's this binary choice thing. They think if you define capitalism as the status quo, what we have now, then I want the thing that is not this. And they call it socialism. But um, the idea that, I mean, I can do the intellectual history of socialism going back to Francois Babeuf. I don't think anybody wants to hear it. But um, most people don't have real definitions of it. It is this, it's sort of like progressive, right? You know, if you say, if you say, you know, you like progressive coffee or progressive music, it just means, you know, you got to listen to the words because it's so nice and all of these things. It just has this positive connotation for a lot of people. But then you tell them, well, you know, here's what's going to come out of your paycheck, or here's the, how long you have to wait to see a doctor. And they're like, well, I didn't mean that. Right. Right. And you go on college campus. I've been on probably 100 college campuses in the last, you know, 15 years. Um, it's amazing, particularly at elite schools. These, a lot of these kids, um, they live the most bespoke lifestyle of almost any human being in history where, you know, and, and I always ask them, first of all, because they think they're independent. And I'm like, well, you know, let, me get, let me get this straight. Your, your food is paid for, your housing is paid for, your security is paid for, um, your rent, your, your you know, your heat, your utilities. You go down this long list of things, and you think you're independent? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but they, they, this generation gets to have things on demand on, on their own terms and ways that no generation before has been able to, particularly among elites. And so they live this iPhone lifestyle, but they vote for a post office party. 
Yeah. And it's a real contradiction that they haven't worked out themselves. It's a bit of a lack of gratitude for how they got to where they're at. Right. And so that, that's, that's incumbent on us as educators to, well, no, I'm not an educator, but us as leaders and, and, and educators and politicians to help people understand why we should have a bit of gratitude for the foundations that led to this, what is basically a miracle that right. we have now. And no, they and, they and they and they sort of ignore that part of it. And, and maybe and maybe the the attraction to socialism and, and again the way they define it is well, just improvements on what we have now. Right. Whereas conservatives just want to, you know, keep all of the bad stuff, or at least they define it as bad stuff. But it's um, but it's a lack of context that is that is really disturbing. And it, and it's also this kind of utopian notion that we can end suffering. Right. And, and I think and. and and I think that's really immoral to tell people that you can end suffering. The easiest thing for me to do as a politician is to promise you stuff. It's really easy. Give me power. I'll give you stuff. And, uh, and we'll be good. Now, of course, that's really not possible because by giving you stuff, I'm promising to make you happy. And that, a couple problems with that. It's, it's not possible. And it's, it's against our founding documents. I mean, we, we have the right to pursue happiness. But you can't have the government guarantee that happiness. And if you claim you can, well, that's problematic because it's not going to work, okay? And when it doesn't work, the people are mad. And when the people are mad, they get resentful. They get angry. They look, for kind of, they look to externalize that blame. And then we get into this sort of victimhood ideology, which I think is another element of it. I think that's another element of socialism. I mean, it's, socialism is and Marxism is this, this, this ideology of pitting groups against each other. Um, you know, it, 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 it might be income-based, but I think that's transformed quite a bit to identity-based, to other immutable characteristics where, where politicians not only promise you to make you happy, but, but promise you power over another group. Right. That's how I sort of define identity politics and why it's bad is because it's a promise to give you power over a different group. And maybe, maybe that's based on sex. Maybe that's based on uh, skin color. Maybe that's based on economic status. But you can trace a lot of, of policies that are being... Um, thrown out there by, by say, the, the, the presidential candidates on the Democrat primary right now, uh, really, you, you can reduce all these to this basic notion of oppressed and oppressor and group power politics. And, and I just think it's divisive. It's unsustainable. Uh, it doesn't work. And it just creates a really angry society. And we always wonder why we have this outrage culture. The, the outrage culture uh, the, the victimhood ideology is a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, so my, my brief against identity politics, um, it's, it's like a pinata. I can hit it from any angle and get some reward. But the, the, at, the, at its core is it's flatly un-American. And um, un-American is a word that I don't like to use too much and that is often abused. But the best thing, uh, one of the best things about America and American culture which is a liberal culture in a classical liberal sense, not in the sort of Bernie Sanders sees the means of production sense, um, is that um, you're supposed to take people as you find them. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to, when you walk into a room and if your first instinct is to count up how many Hispanics, how many blacks, how many Asians, how many this, how many that, and then you're walking into a room and you're reducing strangers to some abstract category. And identity politics, as the argument I make in my book, identity politics is, is deeply natural. It is, um, it is how we are wired. We're wired to come into this world to be fearful of the other 
and to see the other as the abs an abstract threat. That's how we survived in the state of nature for a very long time. And the thing that civilization does, particularly liberal democratic civilization, is it teaches you to show respect for the stranger, for the other. And in the state of nature, if you have a bushel of apples and I want your apples, the way I get them is I hit you over the head with a rock and I take your apples. The great thing about the market is that it's non-zero sum. You have apples, I have money, I give you money. You like money. You give me apples, I like apples. It's win-win. And so I, I part of, and so like, aristocracy was the first form of identity politics. Aristocracy originally in the Greek just means rule of the best. But it turns out that part of human nature is that um, you want to protect what you have and protect your power and pass it on to your kids. And so they invented this notion of noble bloodlines and said that there were certain people who were just born better than other people. And one of the most profound things the American founding did was it got rid of titles of nobility and notions of aristocracy. Because the, the best idea, which took a long time to fulfill in terms of women, in terms of blacks and all that, we ought to pay attention to that. But the best, the best heart of what it means to be an American is to say that simply because of accident of birth, one person isn't better than another person. And you judge people on their own merits and their own accomplishments. And the problem with identity politics is it reduces everybody to simply these abstract categories. And that's simply because someone's color of their skin that they are therefore born better or worse or more deserving than another person is a contradiction of what this country is supposed to be about. Um, just one quick point on the socialism thing. Um, so I do this riff all the time about how in my family I'm a communist. Mm -hmm. And what I mean, and I'm pretty serious about this. I, in my family, the family as a unit is not a market thing. It's not a contractual thing. It's a little tribe. And then you're trying, so like I don't charge my daughter for food. I don't give her a bill for her clothes. I may very soon one day, she's 16, but not yet. <laughs> if you have, if you have two sons, and one's a total lunkhead, just completely screw ups, screws things up all the time. Um, like I see a kid in there, out there, who's just pointed at his brother. Um, uh, if you have one son who's a screw-up and the other son is like a straight-A great kid who does everything all the time, you don't feed the lunkhead worse food, right? You know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't make him sleep in the garage. It really is from each according to his ability to each according to your need in the family. The problem with socialism, I argue, is it has almost nothing to do with Marxist theory for 99% of the people who talk about socialism. What they want is to make government and the nation feel like a family. Yeah, that, right? tribal, that tribal instinct. That, and that's a tribal thing. That's a natural human thing. And the problem with that isn't that that's a bad or evil idea. The problem with that is it just doesn't work. Yeah. And the second you start talking about the president being your father, right, you get into all sorts of trouble. Um, the second you start talking about strangers being family, if a stranger comes to my house and says, hey, I want to sleep on your couch, I go look for my gun, Right. If my cousin comes and says, hey, my flight was delayed and I can't, you know, can't find a hotel room, can I crash on your couch? Of course. Right? These are different rules. Yeah. And the thing that liberal democratic capitalism does is it, it doesn't talk to you about how to treat your family and the people who are within your group. It teaches you how to deal with strangers in a way that doesn't result in you hitting them overhead with a rock. And that is a huge advance. And the only problem you get is when you try to like, 
treat the family like a financial institution of some kind or like some sort of legalistic institution, or when you try to teach, treat the whole country as if it's just one giant family. Right. It's not scalable. Right. You know, and there's the evidence suggests that you can, you can have a co-op of a couple hundred people, and maybe that works. But the bigger you get, the more impossible it, it becomes to hold everybody accountable because there's a lack of accountability right. in socialism. And so if I were to answer very simply why socialism doesn't work, it's because it removes human incentive. And that's bad for both economics and in a practical sense. But it's, and worse than that, and this is where socialism gets deeply immoral, removing human incentive means you're disempowering people. Right. You're removing a very core thing that we need as human beings to survive, which is a sense of purpose. You remove that and you've crushed a culture. And, and I don't know how we haven't learned this lesson yet because yeah. we've watched it happen so many times. So, I mean, but let's... So that's why socialism in the purest form doesn't work. But let's, let's tackle some of the, the I guess, the, the counter-arguments where, where, okay, we don't mean that kind of socialism, but we mean Nordic country socialism. And I find that problematic, too, mostly because the Nordic countries are, are really deeply offended by that, and they don't like being called socialists. They're not that socialist anymore. I mean, no, like, and they have a flatter tax system than we do. They have no minimum wage. They have a great free market economy with probably better regulatory systems than we do, depending on who's measuring it. But by most measures, it appears that way. Uh, they have giant welfare programs. Right. And I uh, got into this, this debate today earlier on campus about, about what are they really taxing the middle class. And People just don't seem to believe that they tax the middle class at exceptionally high rates and also a very flat tax system because they have like a 25% VAT tax, which is right. a consumption tax. So, I mean, so that gets into the Medicare for all debate. Well, they have, they have, they have Medicare for all. They have all these things. And we find ourselves debating that, right, because they're always moving the goalposts when it comes to socialist policies. So, I mean, what's... Um, What's your take on that? What do you, what do you usually... Well, so it drives me crazy because, first of all, when I hear Bernie Sanders talk about Scandinavian socialism, he sounds like some, the Yiddish term is altakaka, this, this old Jewish uncle who works as a tour guide at Epcot Center. And he's taking you through, like, the Scandinavia Very portion specific. of it. He's like, and here's the socialized medicine. And here's this. And it's like, it's all BS. I mean, it's like he doesn't, he's describing a fantasy country, not an actual country that exists. And it's also, I mean, so Charles Murray has this great line where people ask him all the time about, you say this about free markets and this and that and the other thing. And um, what do you say about Sweden? And Charles will say, well... It turns out that there's a very well-established finding in the social science literature that says pretty much any bad idea will work for a while with Swedes. Um, and, and there's a famous line where Milton Friedman was once talking about, was once debating a, Swede, a Swedish guy, and the guy said you know, that their recidivism rate in Sweden was so much better than America's. And, and Milton Friedman was like, Actually, the recidivism rate among Swedes in America is very low, too, right? Mm -hmm. And my point is not to say that, like, Swedes are the super race or anything like that, but when you have a very homogeneous culture yeah. that's very small, um, you can get away with all sorts of things that would have Americans flipping the safeties on their rifles. Yeah. Um, for example, every Swede is allowed to look at every other Swede's tax return on the Internet. That's just something, as a culture... We're not good with, yeah, you know, with and it's true. And also, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the thing that's so infuriating about Elizabeth Warren's fifty-four trillion-dollar plan. Um, it's like a Doctor Evil thing. Um, is that 
she's so determined not to tax the middle class. And literally, and I, when I say literally, I don't mean figuratively the way Joe Biden means literally. Um, <laughs> it is literally impossible to fund anything remotely like the kind of welfare state they're talking about without taxing right. the middle class. You could literally confiscate all of the wealth, not just a big wealth tax, but like with guns like Bane and the Dark Knight movies, and go just take all of the 1%'s money, all of it, and it wouldn't pay for the Green New Deal. Yeah. And you also would get rid of all these people who are doing things like... Creating wealth. Creating wealth, funding the innovation that creates new medicines that help not just Americans, but Swedes too. Yeah. Um, so it's... it's, it's that's, and that's a big problem with the, with the medical, the healthcare side of the debate, and as they have to tell people, like... You know, these countries aren't creating that next innovative medicine. They're right. not creating that next innovative procedure or tech, piece of technology that comes from here. And, you know, is, is our system great? No, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't fall back on that argument by any means. But we have a problem with high costs. So what reduces costs? The only force that's ever reduced costs is a free market force. Right. Like it's the only thing that's reduced cost and at least maintained or increased supply. That's really important. And we, we, the biggest innovator in the world can't kneecap itself. I mean, that's, that's, that's really important to remember. Um, and we don't have that homogenous population. Right. We just don't. And uh, we're not the rule followers, I guess, that the Swedes are. We're a little bit rebellious in this country, and that's okay. It's kind of the American spirit, and we like our freedom, and, and we're going to stick to it. And we should, we should fall back on what works, generally right. speaking. And, and and I, and I think attaching ourselves to the utopian vision of what another country does is it's it's use, it's a useful comparison sometimes for for policy debates. But but um, I mean, but, a la- as a laboratory for innovation, you know, other countries come up with interesting things. I right. assume one of these days Canada will. But um, <laughs> but you know, you, you 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 I mean, the diversity thing in America. Last time I looked, the longest live the longest lived people in America as an ethnic group were Japanese-American women in New Jersey. The shortest lived, the people with the shortest life expectancy in the United States were residents of various Indian reservations in like the Dakotas. Mm-hmm. They have socialized medicine. The, the Japanese ladies in Bergen County don't. Yeah. Um, there are other things that go in, like how people live, their diets, their lifestyles, their culture, and all of these kinds of things. And so when we reduce these things to something that is going to apply to a nation of 330 million people with a one-size-fits-all policy, it just strikes me as, it's just sort of fantasy style. It's the utopianism creeping in from weird places. And, yeah, and it, it ignores the fact that we, we do have to be fighting for some cultural values, too, as, as leaders and politicians. Um, it, so I think it's one of the reasons you hear the term culture war so much, but it's not always clear what that means. Yeah. And so... You know, in a talk I give a lot, I, I, I actually outline certain, you know, I think, yeah, cultural attributes that we need to live by. I mean, you know, the Statue of Liberty holds up the, the freedom torch, but she also has a tablet of law. So there has to be some sense of ordered liberty, and you can't have, and it's not just laws that, that give you that ordered liberty, that there's, there's, there's certain cultural norms as well. And, um, and those are personal responsibility. That's probably the most foundational. We say it a lot as conservatives, but we don't always explain it very well. And it's important because when you're personally responsible, you're empowered. When you own your own destiny, that's empowerment. And that's a uniquely American thing. Uh, I, I forget the numbers, but it's, it's vastly different in a place like Germany. If you pull people and you ask them, you know, uh, is, is your destiny 
um, is your destiny controlled by forces outside your control? Uh, something like 50 or 60 percent of Germans say yes. In the United States, it's only 40-something percent. And I bet if you split that between conservatives and liberals, you, you'd have some pretty big differences. And so that matters because you're empowered to control your own destiny. And, and that, that gets back to the, to the problem of lack of incentive. When you have no incentive, well, you're not really taking responsibility for your actions. And when you're not taking responsibility for your actions, that means you're expecting somebody else to. By definition, there's no other way to, to, to define that. And you're expecting somebody like me as a politician to do that for you. You're expecting somebody like me to pass a law and eventually put a gun to somebody's head and say, you have to do this for them. Okay, and that's really problematic. So personal responsibility is a foundational bedrock. Mental toughness, discipline, that's a foundational bedrock. We have to be tough enough not to be offended by everything. And we also have to be disciplined. Like, I'm going to have the discipline, you know, to, to spend my money on rent and not beer. Right. That takes discipline. Because if you're not disciplined, well, you're expecting somebody else to, to be that mentally tough person. You also can't, you can't thrive in a free market society where there's competition and things like that if you're not disciplined and mentally tough. Um, there's other just compassion, right? I mean, yeah. the sort of the Christian virtue of helping your neighbor and, and helping people in your community. That's number three. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> cut you off. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. You, know, in Ger- you bring up Germany. In Germany, all the churches are subsidized and the pews are empty. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, you know, these institutions like churches, they are a hu- they're sort of like these protective wetlands against social flooding, right, where they keep the government at bay by solving problems right. close to where they're actually, where people have faces and they know their, each other's names and they can impose, you know, things like guilt and responsibility on people. It's just like in your family, you can impose all sorts of expectations on people that a bureaucrat who just sees you as a number can't. Yeah, and that's an important point. That's why a sense of virtue is, is definitely number three, right? And that virtue has to come from somewhere other than your opinion, and that, that's where the Judeo-Christian right. history comes into it, and it's extremely important. And, and we recognize that as a society, but we're forgetting it. Uh, one thing I like to point out is in the House of Representatives that we have the, the portraits of lawgivers up around the walls. And there's all sorts of figures up there, Hammurabi and, and Jefferson and all these Athenians and Romans. But, in the center, but they're all facing towards somebody in the center. And that, that guy is looking straight down at the, at the speaker. Can anybody guess who that is? It's Moses. So, and why, that, why might that be? You know, because he received the Ten Commandments, and they, these things are true. Like, Commandments 1 through 4 basically said the rest of the commandments have to be true. So even if you don't believe in God and, and, and honoring the Sabbath and all that, the point is, is that 1 through 4 said the rest of them are true. And you have to abide by those. Those aren't up for debate. And that's, we kind of take that for granted, but it's important, and I feel like we find ourselves as conservatives defending these basics. Mm-hmm. And part of the culture war is figuring out how to redefend the basics, defend the free market, defend the family, defend the church. We didn't think we had to for a long time, and now we find ourselves in a position where we have to have those debates. And, you know, I, when it comes to problem solving, I want to hit that because you mentioned the church and how you problem solve there. One of the reasons I think conservatism is the only coherent form of government as opposed to progressivism, is because there's defined principles, right? We ask certain questions that have to be asked if we're trying to solve a problem. It's the only coherent approach to problem solving. Some of those questions are pretty obvious, but, but we don't talk about them enough. Does this thing give us more liberty or less liberty? It's an important question. Sometimes we opt for less liberty. Sometimes we put, you know, like speed limits up. Okay, you shouldn't have the freedom to, to drive like a crazy person. Uh, but at least we should ask the question, does this, does this policy infringe on the rights of others in order to give somebody else a service or a right? That's a pretty important question. 
is this problem better solved at, by an individual or a community or a church, and then the local level, and then the state level, and then the federal level? That's an important question because oftentimes what is, the left tends to think, hey, immediately solve this problem by bureaucracy in Washington. And um, you know, that's problematic, and it's not coherent because I, I think if you were to ask them what their basic principles were, they would focus on two terms, injustice and inequality. Mm-hmm. And by, you know, those are hard to define, and they have no limit to them either, especially the way they tend to define justice, which I think is no definition at all. Basically, their sense of fairness, whatever that might be, according to their whims. And then you look at inequality, and I highly doubt that, that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders uh, will ever say, hey, okay, I think we solved inequality. Right. And you, can you imagine what the right... Like, when would that happen? Like, right. what's, what's the number? You know, because... And, and what's the fair share? The top 1% pay almost 40% of all federal revenue. Is that fair? I mean, if you think it's not fair, fine, but at least start with what's true. Right. And then we can debate about what's fair. No, it's funny. I remember when Jesse Jackson said that the number one most pressing civil rights issue facing... It was in the late 90s. Is the number one most pressing civil rights issue facing America is D.C. statehood. And I was like, yes, we have solved civil rights problems in this country. Because yeah. if that's the only problem left, let's call it a day. You know? right. um, They're always looking for the next crisis. Right, it's always, because there's no limiting principle to it. Okay, so I'm going to break the fourth wall here um, because there is no limiting principle to what I can do with this technology. Actually, there's all sorts of limiting principles to what I can do with this technology. I've not yet figured out how to time travel with a podcast recorder. But what I can do is interrupt the audio uh, to talk about this week's uh, sponsor. And assuming that this does end up as an episode of my podcast, it's sponsored by Mrs. Fields. And we're delighted uh, to have them as a sponsor this week. Ending the year on a good note with your clients is crucial for anyone in the world of the self-employed or business owners. What's a better way to leave a good impression than the gift of cookies? When Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies 40 years ago, she won over cookie lovers everywhere with her gooey chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and passion for sharing the joy of baked goods. Nowadays, you can have cookies sent right where you want them without visiting a bakery. With gourmet gift tins and baskets filled with fresh-baked cookies, you know that your order will arrive and, will arrive fresh and flavorful. Ordering is easy, and they can ship your cookies anywhere across the country. And if you're ordering as a gift, you can add a personal custom message, company logo, or family photo. Best of all, Mrs. Fields offers a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee. So, to sweeten the deal, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter the promo code DINGO. That's mrsfields.com, promo code DINGO. That's 20% off any gift at, Mr. at mrsfields.com, promo code DINGO. mrsfields.com, promo code DINGO. Your cookies are on the way. And now back to my conversation with Dan Crenshaw. We want to get to Q&A, and we're already a little long for that, but um, uh, I just want to focus on one thing. So one of the things that sort of burst you on the national scene was your SNL appearance. And, um, uh, and to be honest, you know, I wanted to punch that guy in the face. So I, 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 I really salute you. For, but that sort of gets to the, what I wanted to ask. When you're talking about how conservatives sort of fallen down on the job explaining some of these things, 
One of the things that I've spent a long time, and I do it a lot more these days, trying to explain to young conservatives is that just because rudeness is politically incorrect, that's not a good enough reason to be a jackass. And if, if po politics is supposed to be about persuasion, convincing people, you know, go back to Aristotle, convincing people that their interests are better served being part of your coalition than the one they're currently in. And one of the things that is so bad about our politics now is that we're weaponizing these, these ideals mm -hmm. rather than trying to persuade anybody to subscribe to them. Right. And one of the things I think really struck a chord with your appearance was you didn't go for the, the cheap shot. You actually tried to say, hey, wait a second, I'm actually a human being, and you, kind of, and you came, brought some forgiveness. And forgiveness is amazingly powerful in our culture. So before we move to q and I just sort of want to, like, do you have any advice about how you can how conservatives can sort of get back to actually trying to persuade people rather than just yeah. saying nice doggy until they can find a rock? Right. We have to define what it is to fight, you know, and too many, too many activists define fighting as basically getting in their little circle and screaming really loud and trying to trigger the other side. And, and, and you know, both sides do this. And we're, we're replacing passion and not the good kind of passion, like the sort of unbridled emotion passion, the stoic version of passion that they didn't like. Uh, we're, we're replacing that with sophistication, and that's not a good trend because who are you going to persuade with, 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 with anger and, and outrage? Um, and th this is, again, this is a cultural problem, and we have it on the right. I think the left has it much worse. Yeah, sure. But, but we do have it as well where we look up to that social media star who says the most, you know, outlandish thing, who riles up people, um, who, who finds the traitors within their movement. And, like, where does it get us? What does it get? Who are you persuading with that? I, I thought fighting was also, was, I, I thought the point of fighting was to win. And you can't win unless you persuade somebody. So we have to, def so we have to redefine what it is to fight and to win. And, um, and, it, and you do that by attacking ideas and not people. All right. You, you do that by, by thoughtfully understanding the other side's argument and then explaining why it's wrong. So, I mean, and that sounds very simple, but we are getting away from that. And I, and I you know, and I think if you if you want to be a good activist, then your goal should be bringing more people into your activism who, who might actually disagree with you. The, you know, the, the, the coolest thing that I've ever seen was when I would go into, um, you know, just different communities in Houston and, uh, you know, just talk to people. And then they'd show up and be like, well, I was a Democrat my whole life. I thought I was supposed to be a Democrat. Now I'm going to be a Republican precinct chair just because you came and talked to me. Yeah. You know, and like, that's, that's winning. That's actually, that's the real fight. So. All right. So, uh, first of all, thank you to Dan Crenshaw. Um, and now we're, we're going to open it up for a little bit of Q&A. Uh, we do have a request. There are going to be people moving around with microphones. They will not relinquish the microphone. Um, and we really would love it if you would make your statements in the form of a question. I can't see, I can't really see, I guess, the, over there? I mean, if you see people like... I'm the blind guy. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. You, you have two of them. Um, what is the most pressing cultural issue facing the United States? Leftism or secularism? Thank you. Oh, interesting. Interesting question. Um, I, I guess you got it. Well, secularism is 
easier to define. Um, leftism can mean a lot of things, I suppose, uh, and, they're, and they're so closely related in many ways because kind of one of the big purposes of leftism seems to me to be to kind of replace God with government. Again, kind of we promise to make you happy. We promise to end your suffering. And we promise to, to fill that hole, that void in your life. And so it's hard to distinguish between the two because oftentimes those things are related. What do you... Yeah, I mean, um, I think you can have a perfectly, I mean, I think America would be a lot healthier if, if, if it were more religious in our, with, a, with a healthy expression of religion. Um, I think a lot of our problems can be traced back to things like the decline in religion and all that. In my book, I write about how the, the loss of the sense of God-fearingness is a big problem in a culture um, because just, just the idea that, you know, they say that character is what you do when nobody else is watching. If you're afraid that God is watching, you're more likely to sort of be a decent person. Um, but I do think that you can have a, a healthy society that's a largely secular society um, I think the way I would put it is, and, and Dan brought it up at the beginning, it's a big part of, of my last book, I, I think the biggest cultural problem we have isn't really leftism or secularism, it's a lack of gratitude. Um, we don't teach gratitude in this country. We teach the opposite of gratitude, which is entitlement and resentment. We tell, we tell people from a very early age that the world owes them something, that they have a reason to be pissed off, that they deserve stuff that they didn't earn themselves, but that some, someone that they assign their identity to has done something and they, they get meaning by proxy from it. And all gratitude, I think conservatism is gratitude. Conservatism is the idea that you look around the society that you have and you find the things that are lovely and lovable that you want to pass on and you're grateful for them and you want to pass them on to the next generation. And as a culture, we don't do that anymore, or we don't do that nearly enough. And that, ha that, that sense of ingratitude has manifestations on both the left and the right. I think the left is worse about it because of its ideological predispositions. But there's a sense of entitlement and grievance stuff that you know, pervades a lot of parts of the right, too, these days. And so that's how, I mean, it's a little bit of a Kobayashi Maru of dodging the question, but that's how I would define it. Yes, sir. Yeah, I get so, that. I get that sentiment. Uh, let, let me just restate it because sure. we're recording this and people oh, yeah. might not have heard. Uh, the basic question is: He appreciates the talk about civility and persuasion and all of that, but what are, what would we say to someone who says, "Look, we tried that, and uh, they didn't. They just took advantage of it and pushed the country in a direction not of our choosing. So why don't we just fight fire with fire and fight on their terms?" Um, That's basically right. Yeah. You want to take it first? Yeah, it, I get the sentiment. Um, I, I do. I, I think a lot of people would argue that's how Trump got elected because he was the one willing to really take the fight um, to the left. And I think a lot of conservatives were a little bit sick of, you know, the, the politeness of, of Mitt Romney and, and whatnot. I, I kind of understand that. Um, so, so that's how we got here. And it's sort of escalated ever since, and that's not great. And uh, so what do we do about it, I think, is is a better question. We don't have to stop fighting. I, I think the new normal is to fight, but again, let's define what it means to fight. And my definition of fighting has to do with winning, and you can't win by just owning the libs. 
okay, and, and, and taking the cheapest shot or attacking their worst arguments. Like, I want to attack their best arguments and attack the arguments, not them, as people. Uh, and that's, that's important. And so, I, again, I get the sentiment, but it doesn't change the fact that if we want to win, which the fighters do, then, then you only win by getting more people on your side as, as, it, as it pertains to politics anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is something I'm pretty passionate about. Um, I thought the Flight 93 election stuff was garbage. And um, uh, first of all, it's predicated on this assumption that everything, that conservatives have had no victories over the last 40 years, which is just flatly not true. Um, there have been, uh, you know, first of all, when Ronald Reagan was running in 1976, he was, he was considered a crank for talking about originalist interpretations of the Constitution. Um, a year later, the Federalist Society is founded, and now there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, constitutionalist judges, lawyers, who have moved this country's understanding of the Constitution in a much better direction. The country, the, we have more Second Amendment rights we do today than when I was born. Um, you can go down a very long list of significant victories that conservatives have brought about. Um, uh, and part of it was by doing the work and doing the homework. Um, my big problem with a lot of the arguments, it depends who you're talking about, because there are reasonable people who just say we got to be tougher and we got to fight and not, you know, and I get all of that. That's fine. But on another level, there are people who are basically saying what, you know, as the author of the Flight 93 election put it, we've lost the fight over a colorblind society. So we have to answer to their identity politics with our own identity politics. That breaks my heart, the extent to which that argument is succeeding on the right. Because if the, conser the conservative movement, if the conservative movement gives up on the argument of defending the Constitution and defending the best parts of what this country is about, then that fight is completely lost because the left is not going to pick them up. And so if it makes it harder to actually like defend core conservative principles, so it's harder. That doesn't make it wrong. Just saying, well, they're jackasses, so we've got to be jackasses too, basically lets them win. And the problem is, in this country, th those people are going to outnumber conservatives. Conservatives need to, first of all, have a little more confidence in their own ideas. If you actually believe markets are better, if you actually believe that limited government is better, if you actually believe that the American people believe in certain things that will win out over time, then momentary defeats in politics aren't the end of the world. I used to hear you know, friends of mine on talk radio say, we're one, in 2016, we're one election away from the end of America. If America is one, if we're one election away from the end of America, America is already over. Because the whole point of this country is that we're not supposed to determine our entire lives by basically what a bunch of politicians, no offense, do in Washington. If you have a question, please go to the aisle. Uh, mic guys, could y'all wave y'all's mics, kind of show them where y'all are? Yeah, please go to the aisle. Don't, the aisle, don't make them go to you. Thank you. 
All right, so what people are lining up, just real quickly, uh, on my podcast, I had my friend Mike Gallagher, congressman from the 8th District of Wisconsin, former Marine, um, or ex-Marine, or served as a Marine. I can never remember the right way to do this. Um, a Marine. A Marine. Uh, and uh, he, uh, and I asked him, so uh, is there anybody in the House who uh, could beat you in a fight? And uh, he recoiled at first and said, there are a bunch of Navy SEALs these days, and I'm a little worried about that. Um, and he threw some shade your way. Sure, sure did. So, um, said he could take me. I, 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 I'm just curious, where, um, where do you, like, if, if you basically had, like, an anchorman fight scene in Congress? Yeah, what would it look uh, like? Who <laughs> are, like, the, how long, how long are you standing? Yeah. I'd stand, I'd stand a pretty good chance. Um, Mark Wayne Mullins was a professional fighter for a while. He would do pretty well. Uh-huh. Jim Jordan's a, you know, was obviously a very accomplished wrestler. He would do very well. Mike Gallagher is good at running. He's a very fast runner. <laughs> so Mike would do really well running away from the stronger men uh-huh. in that uh-huh. battle yeah. to include myself. So <laughs> he, would, he would run to take on my- Pelosi. Right, right. right. He's, run, he's running somewhere. Weaken each other. He's running somewhere. Okay, all right. You know, fair enough. Do, I don't know why I practice yeah, running. Yeah. So this, this is going away from danger. This is going to be continued on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, over here, yes, sir. Uh, howdy, uh, Representative Crenshaw. Thank you for your service to our country, and also thank you, Mr. Goldberg, for coming to our campus. My question is: With the rise of socialism in our country, how do we uh, combat it when somebody debates you and says you go to a public college, so you're a socialist? Or um, you're a socialist because you believe in other things that are provided by the government, like the military or the police or the fire department or anything that we would know as a um, as a public good versus a commodity, but they don't quite understand that. Well, you just answered the question, and and, and you have to explain that to them because we we already went over this. The the definition of socialism gets manipulated uh, to be whatever they they think they're making a good point. And you explain to them, that's not socialism. Socialism is owning the means of production or nationalizing the means of production, nationalizing industry, um, implementing price controls. What you're describing are simply public goods, public programs that we've all voted on and deemed that we think are necessary. And uh, it, it's, it's not socialism. I mean, I don't know if right. there's a more I've, complicated answer than that. I mean, there, there, I have two other responses. I think that's right, but there are two other quick responses. One is um, simply because there are some public sector institutions that provide goods, um, that doesn't make them socialist. And the reality is that a lot of public sector goods that people want, they want provided. That doesn't necessarily mean they want the government to provide them. We want the military to have fighter jets. We don't ask government workers to make them. We buy them from the private sector. Um, We want all sorts of public goods to be provided, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the government has to be doing the work. The other thing is, by the same logic of the people who ask you that, you can just turn around and say, well, you know, you just bought that mocha frappuccino from Starbucks, so you're a capitalist. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 distinctions matter. So, over here. Fifty years ago, we taught government, we taught um, patriotism, we taught respect for others in our schools. And we don't do that anymore. We haven't for a while. We need to bring that back. How do we do it? Yeah, so 
I was listing uh, cultural norms that we need to be elevating earlier, and I hit personal responsibility and mental toughness and sense of virtue. If I were to keep going, I would say number four is a sense of loyalty to the country, right? This sense of patriotism that brings us together. It's not and it's not, and then we have to find what that is and what it isn't, right? And that, and that, but and what it is, it's quite simple. It's an adherence to our founding documents. It's an, an adherence to the ideas that led to those founding documents, thousands of years of history that created the best ideas that mankind ever had, and we wrote them all down in Philadelphia. And it's the Pledge of Allegiance. It's the national anthem. It's our American flag. These are certain things that bring us together. It is not skin color. It's not even geographic area because that's changed over time. It is those ideas. And we have, to, we have to elevate those ideas and remember that they matter and that they're important and that there are certain attributes that bring us together and those colors that do matter are the red, white, and blue. Hi. Thank you all for coming out tonight. One of the major appeals to young people right now is the proposal by many Democratic candidates to wipe out student loan debt and provide free college for all. What is a realistic solution conservatives can offer to college students that is based on the principles of the free market? So I, I, think, we have, I think we have some decent ideas when it comes to preventing the, the worsening of student debt. Uh, maybe, maybe that's tying the... Maybe it's, making, maybe it's making Pell Grants available to vocational training as opposed to just a four-year degree. Okay, maybe it's not, as, as a culture, we're pushing people into degrees that maybe don't make sense for them. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's tying the, your interest rate to how many years in the workforce you had before getting into a university. Because it's shown that if you had a gap year, you'll do better in college. It's more likely that you'll earn more. So things like that, um, setting people up for success. And when it comes to canceling student debt, though, uh, that's, that's hard to get my head around because what you're really saying is that working class Americans who pay taxes and maybe didn't get this benefit of investing in their own future via college, their taxes have to go to somebody who did get to invest in their future. I mean, this is a choice. And, and I, we ha can't get away from that choice. This is an investment in your future and you got to do that cost-benefit analysis prior to and I think it's deeply immoral to ask others to pay for that. Yeah, and I... I agree, I agree with that, and, if, and it's, it's worth pointing out that if you, if you look at some of the various cancel student debt proposals, a big chunk of them are basically this really generous giveaway to upper middle class kids, because most of the, the, the graduate, most of the student debt is actually graduate school debt, mm -hmm. not undergraduate yes. debt, and why we're subsidizing people to get, you know, a PhD in, you know, you know, transgender poetry and then saying the government should pay it off, I don't quite get. Um, also, if you just look at this, you know, Dan was bringing this up earlier, the market brings down prices in almost every single area. The only places where we've seen wild inflation of prices are places where the government gets involved to protect certain institutions and stakeholders. So healthcare goes like this. Everything else is going like this, right? You know, or, and college education is going like this. And I have a real problem. I think there's something, to use Dan's word, there's something really immoral to uh, asking all sorts of kids to leverage up. Most young people do not either go to college or finish college. 
and asking people to take on debt or asking the public to take on debt for people who maybe shouldn't be going to college and maybe we should be finding some other paths for them just seems to me like really bad public policy. And um, I really think that the cartel, no disrespect to this wonderful institution, but the generalized speaking, the cartel of higher ed really needs some disrupting in a powerful way. Good evening, Mr. Crenshaw. I want to start this off by first thanking you for your service, and I think I can speak for everyone in here, and we really appreciate the personal sacrifices you've made to ensure our freedoms as Americans and my freedom to ask this question to you today. So early, earlier tonight, you guys were talking about opposition to identity politics and elevating certain races above one another. So my question to you is, is what have you guys done to oppose this anti-white policy known as affirmative action? Yeah. Well, I don't oppose it because it's I don't oppose it because it's anti-white. If, if anything, it hurts the black community quite a bit because it puts it puts a lot of black students in situations uh, where they're not necessarily prepared for a university. So that's it's problematic. It hasn't really helped. Um, but it has nothing to do with with being anti-white, though. I you know, and I, so I reject the premise of your question. The pro, again, the problem with affirmative action is is that. It, 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 is, it is identity politics manifested into policy. And, um, you know, and, and you could have made a, maybe a good argument for it at, at one point, but you know, if, if the content of your character is what matters and, we should, and our policy should be colorblind, then, then, then I think that's, that's valid. But, but, I, but I reject your premise that it's, that it's somehow against white people. That, that's, that's nonsense. Yeah, and also just, I mean, this whole... I mean, I understand where you guys are coming from, and I'm sure you think it's really, really clever how hard you worked on your questions. But the, the, this whole idea that, people, that white people, what they really need to start doing is thinking of themselves as white people um, is part of the problem that I'm talking about. Um, you know, I grew up in New York City. I never heard anybody ever say, well, as a white person, I think X. I think that's just a really weird thing to come out of a normal human being's mouth. And, um, uh, and it would have been much more interesting and a much more honest and, and probing question if you asked about the, ram- particularly given the prior question, if you asked about the systemic and endemic uh, bigotry and racism that is being perpetuated by places like Harvard against Asian Americans who are being discriminated against um, despite the fact that they're more qualified than uh, the white people who are getting, getting into the school. Um, you know, a colorblind society means a colorblind society. And racial quotas were wrong when they kept blacks and Jews um, out of uh, various universities, and they're wrong when they keep Asians out of universities. Um, and... If the problem is that you're against playing favoritism towards one ethnic group or another, you're going to have to work a little harder and scrub the phrase anti-white out of it because it kind of gives away the game. Okay, this is going to be our uh, last question. We're going to close questions. As a constitutional conservative, if I'm honest with myself, I think Trump probably should be impeached. But Mr. Goldberg, it seems like you are living in an ivory tower to (laughs) support the impeachment of and oppose the re-election of the president 
when the alternative is waging an all-out assault on Christianity and unborn children? What do you say to address that? Uh, I, uh, my, my short answer is, huh? Um, there was a lot in that question. Yeah, there's a lot going on in there, and I was so happy that we avoided to get... We went the whole night without having to talk about Trump. Um, <laughs> my position on impeachment is that Donald Trump, if all the facts as we know them now are proven out, that um, what he did meets the level of being impeachable. But that doesn't necessarily mean he should be impeached. Um, I think George W. Bush, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, he signed legislation that, when he signed campaign finance reform, said, I believe that this is in part unconstitutional, and he signed it anyway. Um, that was a violation of his oath. That was an impeachable act. It doesn't mean he should have been impeached for it. Same thing with Barack Obama when he said he didn't have the power to do DACA, and then he did it anyway. That, to me, was impeachable on the merits, but impeachment itself is a prudential question. And, um, and so I'm sort of agnostic on it. I certainly think it's really stupid to do it if there's no chance of removal in the Senate, that you're putting the country through something really dumb for no, for no good reason, which is a position a lot of Democrats had in 1998, and they've forgotten um, I reject entirely this binary choice thing that you're trying to impose on me that um, we're one election away from uh, a sweeping assault on the, on the unborn and, and all of these other things that you attribute to it. The presidency doesn't have that power. The pro politics is a longer fight than one election cycle. It is about moving the country in a specific direction. One of the things that really uh, saddens me about what's happened to big chunks of the conservative movement is that they've decided and internalized this idea that the conservative movement is just interested in what is best in the short-term interest of the Republican Party and not actually what moves this country in a rightward direction. And that takes a longer game and a longer time horizon than just pretending to be political consultants and mouthing uh, slogans that terrify people into voting a specific way in a specific election. Because that is, a, that is an approach to politics that in the long term will destroy the Republican Party. Because you actually have to... The demographics are such is that the Republican Party is losing an awfully large number of voters to this thing called death. Because they're so old. And they're not replacing them with young people. And if you don't figure out how to persuade people who aren't currently Republicans, any victories you get in one election will be lost in the next one or certainly the one after that. And so I, my job is regardless, and regardless, you could disagree with me all about that stuff. I'm not a politician. My job is simply to tell the truth as I see it. And that means I don't work for the RNC. That means if Trump does something I like, I say I like it, love the judges, right? Love killing Baghdadi, all that. But I'm not gonna say things that I don't believe to be true because I'm not a political operative. My job is to tell the truth as I see it, and that should be damn good enough. Uh, dyspepsia. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming, and you guys have something to announce? Is there a, some sort of... Did, right. Does everybody have something under their seat, like on Oprah? <laughs> Well, we just wanted to thank everyone for coming out and, again, thanking our speakers for putting out such a great performance. Uh, it really meant the world to us. Thank you, everybody.
Okay, so that's it. I'll be back in Washington in the studio next week for a more normal podcast, I hope. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, please, again, go to thedispatch.com uh, to sign up for our newsletters, to uh, find out more about us, and to get used to going there much more often once the website uh, fully uh, debuts in January. Uh, for The Remnant and for Jack Butler, who's nowhere to be seen right now, uh, I'm Jonah Goldberg. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you next time. Yeah. <laughs>